What was it about gambling that you were so into? I think probably I've got this sort of addictive personality. The sinking sound of despair The smell of dread in the air I'm head to toe in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry We are joined by Keith Gillespie. I must say that it is a bit of an honour for me to have the first Manchester United player onto the podcast. We've had Neil Ruddock, but he's obviously a scouse bastard. And then Fabrice Mwamba, who, like, Arsenal shit, I don't really care too much for it. But the fact that you play for Manchester United absolutely fascinates me. And also the fact that you were part of the iconic class in 92. It's it's quite mind-blowing to think about him sitting opposite a man who's had the experiences that you've had. Growing up in Northern Ireland, we just drove here on the way. We haven't been here many times. Just the flagpoles with Union Jacks coming out of them. Like, I know there is, of course, peace now, but it still seems like a relatively, not hostile place, but a place that lets you know of its identity uh, straight off the bat when you're driving in. And obviously, um, your old man was a guard in the H-block in the era of Bobby Sands and stuff like that. Would Troubles and the whole sectarian violence of Northern Ireland been something that was involved in your childhood? Not, not really. I mean, you were you were very aware of it. Um, you know, the fact that my dad was in a sort of high profile job at at the times when when it was, you know, really really bad. You know, thankfully, you know, peace has sort of been restored. But um, you know, we we would sort of be kept away from the violence. You know, I lived in a place, Bangor, which okay. wouldn't have had the sort of violence. You know that Belfast probably would have. Yeah. Um, you know, you would. What side were you kind of leaning towards in the whole thing? From a family perspective, were you but orange I, or green? I, I, I'm, I'm brought up a Protestant. Okay. Um, you know, but you know, for me, relatively neutral to an extent. Yeah, exactly. You know, religions. You know, it's it's a problem in in society nowadays. Would you be a believer in God? Yeah, but yeah, I believe in God. I'm, I'm from a Christian family. Um, would you attend mass and stuff like that? Yeah, I used to. I used to have to go to church every um, every Sunday. And do you, was, do you still go? Kid. I don't go now. No. no, I don't go now. But you know, I was brought up. That's the way I was brought up. Going to church every uh, every weekend, and I was in the boys' brigade. And um, to play football on a Saturday for them, you had to attend the church on the Sunday. So I had to. So, like, would you have would you have taken part in like orange marches and stuff back in the day? Oh gosh, no, none of that. No. What <laughs> I did find interesting about you was that obviously football is a game associated with kind of the working classes, but you went to Bangor Grammar, a school known for rugby, a school that's obviously, it's won like, I think it's one of the fucking whatever, Ulster Schools Cup five times. Your football career wasn't really encouraged in Bangor. It was nearly frowned upon. Yourself and obviously Terry Neal is the only other two internationals in Northern Ireland. You weren't given the same treatment or respect that the rugby players would have been. Yeah, and I think um, Terry, uh, Terry Neal only lasted about six weeks maybe at the school. Really, yeah? Yeah. Um, you know, I I done the f- the full five years, but you know, with it being a a, a sort of rugby school, um, you know, I had f- I I had football on a Saturday, um, the rugby team would be playing on a Saturday, um, and you, if you were picked for the team, you had to play. And was it a private school? No, it wasn't a private school, but um, just you know, it's 
it's got that real connection with rugby. Um, and I used to actually have to sneak on uh, onto the train to go to Belfast, and the boys would be getting on a bus to go to like to across the, the road, across the road. Um, you know, and I would I would get called in on a Monday morning, and then you know detentions and what have you, and. You know, even even though you were playing at such a high level and representing Northern Ireland at other age levels, yeah, exactly. And it, you know, I'd, I'd already signed for Man United when I was thirteen years of age. You know, and that oh, that was a locked in pre agreement. Yes, I signed schoolboy forms when I was thirteen. And even though obviously George Best, Sammy McElroy, Norman Whiteside, Manchester United was an iconic club in Belfast, and even that didn't kind of win over no, the not, authorities in the school. No, not at all. Um, it even got to the stage where I had Saturday morning detentions. Um, you know, and. Got to stage then where my mum had to go and see the headmaster and, and, and give off about it. Um, you know, I got picked to play for Northern Ireland schoolboys at under 15 level. It's a squad of 16 and you get the, uh, a green blazer. My, my school was the only school that didn't pay for the blazer. Um, I think it was maybe 80 pound or something, but, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, that they couldn't. Um, and the principal at the time was a big problem. Yes, he was, um, you know. But he landed himself in a bit of trouble then, afterwards. No, that was the uh, the vice principal. But they claimed he knew or something like that, didn't they? Yeah, well, apparently so. Um, I wouldn't want to comment too much on that. You know, I think he just passed away not so long ago. Yeah, so oh, oh the be, principal did? Yeah, I wouldn't okay, yeah. sort of be... No, no, definitely. Or, grave, but, uh, or IP. Or IP. But how did... Obviously, you grew up with your old man being a huge Manchester United supporter, like a lot of people in Northern Ireland were at the time. As I previously mentioned, like people like George Best, I kind of nearly find myself that Belfast and Northern Ireland in general is the reddest place on earth. I find it redder than Manchester even. Like Dublin doesn't even compare to Belfast. You go to a bar in Manchester before a home game, so many Northern Irish accents, it just bleeds red. So obviously it actually genuinely would have been a childhood dream for you to not just be a professional footballer, but to play for Manchester United. That was the be-all and end-all. Yeah, it was the ultimate dream. Um, you know, you know, I became a Man United fan because of my dad. You know, he supported Man United and you sort of just follow suit. Um, you know, so for me, wanting to be a, a professional footballer um, at a young age, you know, was something I always wanted to do. But to be going to the club that I supported and the club that my dad supported was, was an even bigger dream. What was uh, the first hint of United being interested in you? Um, well, I, I went to the, the Man United School of Excellence in, in Belfast. Um, Did you have to be invited? Yeah, um, you know, I'd have gone there sort of every Wednesday night sure, for a bit of training. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been scouted to go to that by, by Eddie Coulter, the man you had scout in Belfast. And, you know, I'd go to that every Wednesday and I was I was making, I was doing quite well. And then all of a sudden, Eddie says to me that um, I was going to run trial to Man United. And then it was up to me to, to go over there for a week and, uh, and do well and try and, you know, get an apprenticeship, a guaranteed apprenticeship. And what was your first good. experience of, of meeting Fergie, Sir Alex? Um, you know, playing for for Man United, uh, you know, in in terms of the School of Excellence, we had games over here, and Alex Ferguson would come over to the games at times and watch in games. Belfast. Yeah, yes, this was before he'd won though. This is when he was properly kind of. He didn't have the. St- he'd obviously been great at Aberdeen, but he he was under pressure at United nearly. Well, exactly. This is sort of around nineteen ninety, where you know yeah. they, they still hadn't, they still hadn't won a, a league title. Yeah, which is what they strive to do um, so yeah I met him there as a 13 year old um, I went across to sign um, my forms um, and, and go to a game on the Saturday and on the Friday night my mum my dad myself and Alex Ferguson his wife went out for dinner <laughs> you know so he, he just went that little bit extra you know in terms of and did he pick up the bill oh of course <laughs> <laughs> of course I remember him sort of 
you know, handing the, the waiters a 20 quid tip, you know, so, so back in sort of, that would have been sort of 88, 89 around yeah, that yeah. time, you know, so 20 quid tip back then. Was and it. did you know coming over that you were joining this group, obviously, because you, you grew up with Beckham, Giggs, the Nevilles, Butt, Savage, all the boys, basically. It was freakish nearly, like when you look back at it, even in 20, 30 years, it's always going to be spoken about, that that youth team you were part of, it rivals any club in the world. We can talk Barcelona, Real Madrid. To have that much young talent, and even the guys who didn't necessarily make the grade United, like yourself, like Robbie Savage, still had pretty unbelievable Premier League careers. I mean, you've had over 250 Premier League appearances. They don't pick them off trees. Did you know arriving, or was there any word of, yeah, there's a lot of freaks here. They're that good. I, I don't think so when we first went over. You know, I, I would have known a lot of the boys from... You know, between the sort of ages of 14 and 16, I used to go over at every school holidays, you know, Easter, Christmas, summer holidays, you know, so I would have I would have known a lot of the boys. Uh, but going into, you know, as a 16-year-old apprenticeship, um, I don't think anybody could have foreseen what was going to happen in terms of the players that, that came through. Um, you know, even as a 16-year-old, you know, the Youth Cup 1992, uh, Paul Scholes couldn't even get in the side. Yeah, um, you know, and too small. Yeah, he was he was small. I think everybody could see that the talent was there, but he, you know, he just needed to fill. But out. when you say the talent was there, was it like frightening talent? Because we're talking about a guy who's up there with the Javis and Iniestas. When you actually look at football folklore, Pascal's is probably one of the greatest midfielders to ever play the game. Oh, without, without a doubt, you know. And um, but when you're watching him training with the red hair, like on a Manchester rainy afternoon in November, did you think world great, as good as Platini, or just think he's very good? Well, probably not at sort of 16, 17. You've sort of seen more 18, 19, 20 when he is becoming more, yeah. uh, more a first-team regular. What uh, do you put it down to that they all went, like, they didn't just become great. They became, like, Neville, technically average, but became a world leavener. Beckham obviously became the brand, had the looks, but he was still a great player. We sometimes forget that. Gigs, crazy, but good career. Um what kind of role do you think like Eric Harrison and people like that had in making them that good? Eric was was you know a big big factor in all of it. Um, you know the respect that the players had for him. Um, you know he was a, he was a scary character because um, you know we speak about this quite a bit when when I see the boys and I see Ben Thorny quite a bit. He was part of that side and you know we talk about times with with Eric and in terms of you know he would. He would Ben would bring up a game we were playing in the A team, and he says he, a particular game we played Tranmere away, and we won five two. And he says that I'd scored two and 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 set up two, but came in afterwards, and Eric absolutely went through me. And looking back, it was <clears throat> it was all about character building, you know. It was just my sort of week to get the the sort of rollicking, um, you know. And there's times where I've come in thinking I'm going to get it here. I've had a poor game, and I don't get anything. Yeah, and that was Eric's role in terms of he knew how to keep your feet on the ground, but he knew sort of the the talent in in terms of the dressing room that we had. And they obviously talk about that iconic image of him knocking on the window of the cliff when you're all playing, and like and the fear it instilled in you as players. And it is it is startling the numbers of world class players that were produced by that team. But do you think the reason that you were the one who ultimately like? I mean, you would have been as likely as any of them in 1992, even till 1995, to be in that treble-winning side. I mean, Keith Gillespie, let's be honest here, he wasn't a Robbie Savage. In terms of quality, you were right up there when you left United in January 95. It was a bit of a shock. How much of that do you put down to your nationality and the fact that you weren't eligible for Champions League football due to the rule that they couldn't have more than five non-English players playing? 
Well, I mean, that that was the reason behind it all. Um, you know, the, it was the rule at the time. You know, I think it was three foreign players and two, I think it called, they called them assimilated players. Um, and looking at Man United's squad at the time, when you got the people like Schmeichel and Dennis Irwin and Cantona, Kinchelskis, yeah. uh, Hughes, Giggs, Brian McClare, you know, it was, <coughs> it was full of, you know, foreigners, be it a lot of them were British, but you know, classified as foreign. Yeah, which makes sense though, because it is an English club, Manchester United. Well, it, well, exactly. Um, you know, and that was that was the reason, the reason then that Alex Ferguson thought he needed an English striker, um, and went to, to Newcastle to get Andy Cole. Uh, and Kevin Ke Kevin Keegan came back. The, the only way that Andy Cole would go is if he could have me. Uh, Were you shocked when Fergie? Because obviously you come up. That was the first season you played nine league games. You've been knocking on the door just like the rest of the class in '92, and you've been playing well. You scored a goal. You go to an FA Cup game in Sheffield, and he calls you into the the toilet. Is it? Yeah. And he explains to you that out of nowhere, you might have thought it would have been words of encouragement. And he kind of tells you the only way Cole's coming here, and we need him for Europe as well as his goal record, is if you go the other way. Were you shocked? Well, he, he, the funny thing, he never mentioned Andy Cole. He, he just said an English striker at Newcastle, but obviously I knew who it was. You know, Andy Cole was was firing goals in left, right, and centre, and. Um, he left it. He left the decision down to me. There was no pressure whatsoever put on me, and I could have turned it down. You know, the problem for me at Man United was that, although I'd played, you know, a few games and and, and done well, I wasn't a regular. I was nineteen years of age, and had Andre Kanchelskis. But none of the boys were at that stage. No, they, they, they weren't. Uh, but again, going back to the to the foreign rule, every other one of the boys playing in Europe were were, were playing in the European yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and part of that squad, whereas I wasn't, um, you know. So as I say, there was no pressure put put on me. But I realized, I realized myself, um, you know, that Kevin Keegan, big big name in football, uh, Newcastle, two time Ballon d'Or winner, exactly. Um, Newcastle, fantastic club. Um, you know, I didn't know how big a club it was until I actually moved. Like it, after he told you that day in Sheffield, you watched the game, you weighed up whether or not you wanted to leave. He told you before the match, and after the game, you got a taxi straight to me. The Newcastle board with Keegan. That's right. Yeah, we uh, the rest of the boys jumped on uh, jumped on the coach to head back to to Manchester. Myself and Alex Ferguson jumped to uh, jumped on in a car to head to um, a hotel to meet um, Freddie Fletcher, Freddie F Freddie Fletcher, Freddie Shepherd, the chairman, and Kevin Keegan. Um, so we got there, and you know it's about midnight. Um, you know, no mobile phones even. So. First thing Alex Ferguson said to me was, um, you know, get your mum on the phone. So rang my mum, explained the situation. He came on and spoke to her. Um, she was happy enough for that. Um, obviously a little bit shocked. Um, you know, it's not the phone call you expect at midnight. And who was representing you? Did you have an agent? I didn't have an agent at the time. Um, you know, so Alex Ferguson obviously knew this as well. So uh, he says, look, he said to my mum, is it okay if I act as case agent? You know, and yeah. I... I'll do my best for him. Um, so she trusted him. Um, so we went into the talks and, um, you know, he thrashed out the terms and the next day I was up in Newcastle signing. And he exaggerated the money you were on at United he in did. order to get you a better deal at Newcastle. He did because uh, when when the eight of us from the, the, the 92 Youth Cup um, team uh, signed contracts, we were on, we, we signed four-year contracts and we signed £210 a week to going up to 230, going up to 250, going up to 270, you know, so it wasn't big money. Um, at this stage, it was on £230 a week. Um, and he 
he says that uh, to to Kevin Keegan and, and the two directors that it was on six hundred pound a week and they wanted they wanted them to double that. Mm. Um, and Newcastle agreed it straight away. So, <laughs> you know, he uh, he did what he said he was going to do. He was going to, uh, you know, get me the best deal that he could. And you know, he told a few white lies, but you know, I'm thankful for for the way. And in terms of quality, like at this point, as I said, you're every bit as likely as the rest of the class of '92 to be a European Cup winner. Quality wise, age wise, like you're you're debatably as good as Beckham at this point. You know what I mean? There was no no one definitely would have said Beckham's going to be a better player than Keith Gillespie. Do you think that when you leave a club like Manchester United that young, you suffer from the fact that your peak in terms of size of club has come too early, so you're always going to view whatever's after that as slightly beneath you? You share dressing with Irwin, Bruce, Pallister, Cantona, Hughes, and then you arrive at Newcastle and it's great, but it's just not Manchester United. Did you think you were... Did you kind of think, even though you're only 19-20... I'm a little bit too good for this, so I'm not going to take it as seriously. No, not not at all. Um, as I said, it, you know, as a 19 year old, you want to be sort of playing regular first team football. Then you know, not far off my 20th birthday. Um, you know, so for me, it was a great opportunity for me to go to a club like Newcastle and work under somebody like Kevin Keegan and become a regular in a, in a Premiership side. Um, you know, as I say, I didn't realize what a big club Newcastle was until I arrived there. Um, you know, I think everybody knows um, in terms of the fans that they have, how how much the club means to them. Um, you know, so it was a chance for me to become a regular and, you know, playing with people like, you know, Peter Beardsley straight uh-huh. away. You know, I, again, I didn't realise how good Peter Beardsley was. I knew he was a fantastic player, but then playing with him and training with him. Yeah. And bear in mind, he was 33 years of age, you know, yeah. and I'm sort of training with him and playing with him, thinking how good must he have been, you know, yeah. six, six years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, I never, I never ever thought like that. You know, it, you know, it was, it was a difficult decision. Uh, it was a difficult decision to leave Man United, but it wasn't, if you know what I mean, because I, I was thinking more of the long-term thing about getting regular first-team football. And the strange thing is that six months after I left the club that Alex Ferguson tried to buy me back. Uh, oh, really? Because Konchelskis left. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, I I actually only found this out through Gary Neville, who who was away with England, and, and Peter Beardsley was very close with Kevin Keegan, and... Um, Alex Ferguson put a four million pound bid in to bring me back six months after letting me go because. Um, I think so that that's basically losing three million off the spot to get you back because yeah. you were only considered one of the Andy Colfi out of the seven. Well, yeah, um, you know I didn't think I'd done that well in the six months. Yeah. But, uh, you know he obviously knew me. Um, they were thinking who could we get in as a as a as a right winger, um, and basically you know Newcastle turned it down. Uh, but I think that's how then that. <clears throat> David Beckham, <coughs> excuse me. David Beckham moved from being a sort of central midfielder yeah. to a right-sided yeah, player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it it could have been so different, but you know, I wouldn't have changed anything because you know that was the ninety started in ninety five, ninety six season when, you know, I was part of that Newcastle side who, who became known as the Entertainers, and we came so close to winning the league. Yeah, what what a side! And underneath all of this, um. Your on-pitch performance wasn't really affected by it, but there was the personal aspect of the gambling that that was that was following you around everywhere. What was it about gambling that you were so into? I think probably I've got this sort of addictive personality, you know. And for me, for but like, are you into drink and stuff like that as well? Or no, I, I I enjoy a drink, but you know, not people probably 
think I'm a bigger drinker or was a bigger drinker yeah. than what I was. But I, I would always had a drink at the right times, you know, and especially you're going to Newcastle, you know, a really vibrant city. And, you know, if, if we play on a Saturday and you go out on a Saturday night and you go out on a Sunday, you know, I'm not doing anything different to anybody else my yeah. age, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing it at the right times. It started as young as the cliff, even when it was no money. It was the concept of gambling that had you. Yes, the first time I went into the bookies, you know, you you know, as an apprentice, you're earning forty six pound a week, and you're going in and you're putting two pound on a horse, and it's the whole buzz of winning. Um, and I've always found that, you know, it it's just the way you know gambling sort of grips people. Um, and you used to do the accumulator for the staff and Fergie and all that shit. Yeah, I used to because at that time there was there was none of this what you have nowadays with online betting or yeah, yeah, yeah. you know accounts. So it was write out your coupon. Yeah, you, you had you, you had to go into bookies to to you know put your bet on. There was no other way to do it. So the the club was well aware that it was doing that and and it didn't see a problem. I think you know it, it's it's more a sort of big taboo topic now rather yeah. than it was back then yeah you know back so, then it was nearly just a bit of crack yeah exactly and and, and the fact that coaches and managers putting on bets sending down yeah basically yeah. an academy player to go down and take the nearly t- if if, for, if you went down with a fucking fivefold for fergie and he won would he throw you a tip oh yeah he he, he won a few times and you know he'd throw you 50 quid <laughs> you know so it was uh i was always willing it to go in but um you know, you look at... Uh, Would you ever the, pocket some of the money if you just read them and go, <laughs> these aren't coming in? <laughs> yeah, I'd be too worried about that. The regulations, you know, in betting now is that players and managers obviously can't bet on, on Obviously, football. yeah. You know, so back So then, Fergie was betting on his own league, not his own games, though. Um, You know, I can't remember the, the games that he was betting on, you know. Yeah. He, would, he wouldn't do it every week, but just now and again that he would he would, he would would do it. But things would. multiplied for you there, and by the time you went to Newcastle, obviously living in a hotel, being 20, I don't know any person who could cope with that level of, of financial freedom. I mean, you're you're one of the richest people in the country for your age at 20. What were you making? £1,200 a week, and you were 19. Yeah. And you're living in a hotel on your own. Yeah, living in a... What else are you going to do, Bar? Get birds up to your room and go to the bookies? <laughs> Nothing. So... It starts getting pretty scary for you, though, because you're introduced to the concept of phone dialing betting as opposed to walking into the bookies. Yeah, that was the that was the big problem then, because I always found then that you know if you had five hundred pound in your pocket and you walked into the bookies and you lost it, you walked out. You leave. Whereas now you're ringing up and you're just quoting numbers and you're not physically handing over the money. And so this multiplied with a guy called Mickey or whatever who was on the phone to you, yes. and you were betting money you didn't necessarily have then. It was just kind of put on credit. Yes, and. Then came Black Friday. Yes. Which is a moment where I, I really realised what a guy, not just a footballer, a player, a manager, but what a bloke Kevin Keegan seems to be uh-huh. morally as a person for how he dealt with the whole, you're only a 22-year-old guy, you lose more money than you have and Keegan gets you advanced on your signing on fee in order to make sure you can pay it. But what what happened that day when you lost the 49000 yeah, forty forty seven thousand. All right, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was just like any other day where I came back. I wasn't living in the hotel then. I was living in a house. Uh, you know, nineteen ninety five, twenty years of age, um, and it's just betting all day as as normal. Remember the first bet I had on. Do you only bet horses? Do you ever bet sport? Well, I've done football as well. Um, Did you ever back like American football or no, anything? No, and I, I didn't know enough about that. Uh, <laughs> some, some would but say were you betting enough, to win money and spend it, or were you just betting to bet more? Were you just betting, so I just want to... Was the best situation for you to have just a great bankroll? Win yeah. 20 grand, have 20 grand to lose? Yeah, I suppose that's the way it was. You know, you weren't sort of bothered. You know, that's the sort of... 
naivety of it all, um, being so young, um, and you know, earning earning good money and uh, and doing a job that you love doing. Um, you know, that first day in, in Black Friday, I had a thousand pound on a horse, and the, I even remember the name of the horse, Quandry, that it won it. I think it was six to five. So. I'm ahead straight away, but by sort of twenty past five that afternoon, I'd lost forty-seven thousand, and you know it's. Uh, How do you get to the point where the forty-seven is like? What well, What are you doing? Like, cause you lose, so you you lose then the two, you lose another four. What were you doing? Just chasing your? Were you doubling up stakes? Yeah, you're sort of chasing at times, but you know it'd be a case of me picking up the phone and I'd I'd, I'd say right back in that. There's times where I wouldn't know how much I was going to say. I, w- I wouldn't have planned and going right I'm having a thousand this I would say uh, I'd ring up and all of a sudden I'd go well, can I have two thousand on this you know just yeah. just a number that came into my head Yeah. you know and that's the sort of crazy but would you have got the it. same buzz off a of 20 nearly exactly you would You would, and that's that's the thing about gambling um, you know there's such a, an adrenaline rush in terms of winning um, yeah. you know and that's what really got a hold of me the most fascinating thing was kind of even though you're someone a high profile and Newcastle's a town where footballers are gods, they are everything. And you're walking into the bookmakers here, you're with everyday Joe's before obviously the phone betting started, but the story about you back in your own game, which wasn't mm-hmm. something regular at all, mm-hmm. but somebody once told you the most common results were two nil, two one, three one, three nil. Yeah. And you back in Newcastle to win one of those results, basically with five hundred quid and you're three nil up. Yeah, um, that that actually happened two days before Black Friday, um, where I'd, I'd I'd won about three and a half grand that afternoon. We're playing Stoke that night, and as 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 you said, that somebody had said to me two nil, two one, three nil, three one were our most common results. So Peter Beardsley hadn't scored in about six games, um, so I decided to to ring up and have and a five hundred pound single on Beardsley for first goal. I think it was six to one, and then I had uh, five hundred pound doubles with Beardsley, two nil, two one, three nil, three one. <laughs> Um, so Peter scored the first goal, scored the second. Um, I had a cross shot after about an hour. The keeper saved Les Ferdinand scored with three nil. Um, and I remember Paul Pesca. How long into the game is this three nil? Uh, there was half an hour left. Okay. Um, that was the problem. <laughs> uh, so every time I got the ball, I wasn't really wanting to venture forward too much. Um, and it was I, I, I was having a good game for an hour. Um, and then that sort of came into my head. You know, I knew we weren't going to lose the game. But I remember Paul Pesca Salido going clean through and goal. With about fifteen minutes to go, and and he missed it, but I was sort of watching him, thinking, you know, score, you know, because three one was better odds for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, about six minutes to go, Darren Peacock ventured forward, and and Darren didn't score too many goals, um, you know, so ma- managed to fold him in the box, and he rifled it into the top corner, and you know, because it was such a novelty for Darren to score, everyone was running and jumping on top of him, and there was me trudging back to the halfway line on my own. Uh, Thinking you've just cost me fifty two grand. And what was that? Uh, what was that bus home like after the game? Well, you know, I never, I, I never spoke about it. I never told anybody about it. Did you regret not telling the boys? Um, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, they know. would have done you a dig out probably if they'd known. They, 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 they probably would have. They probably would have. But um, I mean, this is at a time obviously where. You know, the, there was no problem in betting on the game because it's not like I'm betting on us to lose the game. Yeah. You know, the yeah. problem is if you're going the other way and, and, and betting against your team um, it's just one of those things you know probably if I had said something you know the boys might have sort of shut up shop you know and that might have might have been it but it just wasn't to be what do you think it was about that Newcastle side when they were 12 points clear at Christmas like being part of it obviously as United fans we love to celebrate the fact that Cantona came back from a suspension and 
through shockwaves through the whole of English football. But did you boys actually feel that re-entrance, or was it just a case of out-and-out old-fashioned bottling? Well, I mean, yeah, we, there's certain games where we we sort of threw it away. But, I mean, you've got to look at United's, you know, running, how how well they did. The, you know, the amount of times we come into the dressing room after a game, 1-0, Cantona. You know, that's the way it was. Yeah. I think the big turning point was probably the game at St. James's Park against Newcastle where... Schmeichel's performance. Schmeichel was unbelievable. And I think if we won that game, we probably would have went on to win the win the league. We, I think we were four points, four points ahead at the time. You know, United won the game, cut it to one. But, you know, we win the game, it goes to seven again. You know, and it's they're, they're playing catch-up where it, that gave them a sort of momentum. And then, you know, you look at games where, you know, you score three goals at Anfield and you don't win the game. You know, we lose 4-3. Crazy. We're 1-0 up with 10 minutes to go against Blackburn. Uh, we lose that game 2-1. Um, you know, so... As a guy who knew Ferguson, um, like you did, a guy who was raised by Ferguson, I mean, you grew up... Like with those boys at sixteen, like did you have your first ever drink with those boys in the class? And like you know the way we all do things yeah. in teenage years, we fucking we we get up on yeah. our first romantic endeavor. We have our first six cans and puke our ring up. Were <laughs> they things you experienced with the class of ninety two? Yeah, I mean uh, the first time I was out drinking would have been with uh, Nicky Butt and another guy, uh, Colin Murdoch. Um, oh yeah, you know that would have been our first my first time with. You know, having a drink, yeah, yeah, and as you say, puking up was was definitely puking up that night. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you got to know these boys inside out because so you're ingrained in that them. culture. So when you see Fergie playing the mind games with Keegan that he did in terms of saying Leeds are going to let Newcastle win because they hate United, and Notts Forest are going to let Newcastle win because the Stuart Pearce testimonial has been arranged, did you nearly feel like warning Keegan? He's just very good at what he does. Don't react. No, I, I I wasn't sort of thinking too much into it. Um, you know, I think the the thing about it with the mind games that everyone's talking about, you know, we're talking we're in the last week of the season. Um, you know, this wasn't Keegan. It's sort of kept quiet about it for a while, but you know, we went away to to Leeds, and I think that's it's an iconic moment in in sport. Everybody remembering Kevin Keegan's rant after the game. Um, Love it. I feel I actually feel particularly agreed because everybody remembers that rant, but it was actually me scored the winner that night. Yeah. Nobody remembers it. Yeah. The uh, header against Leeds. Yeah, um, you know, and then we went to Forest, and you know we were up against it. Um, you know, we drew the game one each, and we needed a miracle on the last day of the season, which which didn't happen. Uh, for me, the end of that season, you, you know, the league table doesn't lie, but for me, it probably did that year because I think we were the. We were the most entertaining team to watch, um, you know, and we just sort of blew it towards the end. And I think when you've got Man United and you've got a dressing room full of people who, who were winners, who had won the Premiership before, I think the only one we had in our dressing room was Peter Beardsley. Was know? there an additional thing to seeing the boys you grew up with get their first league title quicker than you did? Or, or like, I'm not saying because you were, you left United in quite amicable terms, but seeing the Beckhams, the fucking Nevilles and all that win their first league Hanson you'll do nothing with kids for you personally to have won the league before they did in 96 it would have been an unbelievable moment <laughs> for you yeah it would have been you know it's, it's something I never thought about then you know and you know I, I was just wanting to do the best that I could for Newcastle and I, I think at the start of the season if if anybody had said that we would have taken it down to the last game with a chance of winning the premiership 
everyone would have would have bit their hands off. Um, it's such a key moment for Newcastle fans though, 96 as well, because there is the, if they did win that league, they probably wouldn't be where they are now. That's just the way football works. Yeah, that, that's the way I always thought that, you know, if, if we did win the league that year, um, you know, we could have really gone in to be a top four side every yeah. single season. And, you know, I remember Kevin Keegan after the, the game, the final day of the season, you know, absolutely got it. Um, he didn't even want to come out and do, you know, the you know the walk around the pitch, you know, to, to thank the fans yeah. you know, because he felt like he'd let the fans down. But the actual scenes after the game and, you know, I went into town afterwards and you'd actually thought we'd have, we'd have, we'd have won the double, you know, the, yeah. the, the scenes that night, you know, because I think everybody realised what a special season it was. And Was he a great man-manager, Keegan? He was unbelievable. Was he the best man-manager you, you, you've had? Yeah. By, by a long, long way. Um, and was it just out of the respect you all had for him as a player, or was he just a genuine nice guy? He, he was he was great fun. He was he was good fun around the dressing room. You know, he had Terry McDermott there, and they were a bit of a double act at times. And, you know, his, his team talks, you know, would be quite brief, but his, his strong point then was going around the dressing room and putting an arm around everybody. And, and just, you know, there's times where he'd, you'd, you'd just feel like you're the best player in the world. You know, and yeah. it, it only took one sentence from him. And you'd want to go out and run through, you know, brick walls for him. That summer, they broke the English transfer record. They brought in Alan Shearer, as good as it was on paper. And obviously, like you couldn't not take. When he was at Blackburn, he was the best centre forward in the world. It's just there is, there was no better yeah. in the world continent. Yeah. I don't give a shit if you're Brazilian, whatever. Alan Shearer was number one. Uh-huh. Um, great idea, bringing him back to his hometown club. Did Newcastle sacrifice a little bit of its soul by getting him in? Did he start to kind of run the club? Because of his rep, I think the problem that we had then, you know, when you when you bring Alan Shearer, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable striker, as you say, but you know, we got Les Ferdinand there as well. We got um, uh, Tino Espria as well. You know, there's three top strikers, and it's very difficult to, you know, to fit all them into the side. Yeah, Peter Beardsley's still there. You know, and <coughs> at times I suffered myself because. You know, from the previous season when we played sort of a four-four-two with Janola left, myself right, all we had to do was get the ball in the middle, and you had Les Ferdinand. You know, for me now you've got Les Ferdinand and, and Alan Shearer. You yeah. know, so uh, there'd be times where I wouldn't play, uh, and Peter Beardsley playing the right. And, and Janola and Shearer just didn't work as no, people. They didn't. You know, they 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 just didn't get on. Um, you know, I'm not sh- I'm not sure why. You know, I think at times we- David Janola was an unbelievable player. You know, on his day, he was just unplayable. Uh, but um, him and Alan, you know, just didn't click. But for me, as I say, um, when you're playing a four-four-two and you've got those people in the box, you know, Peter Beardsley isn't going to work on the right. No, you know, because he's not going to do w- what necessary I would do in terms of yeah. running at fullbacks and getting crosses in. And that's what you know, Les Ferdinand and, and Alan Shearer thrived upon. Um, so I, I struggled. I struggled a bit in terms of not being a regular then, which was, was disappointing. How shocking was it when Keegan said he's done? Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely gutted. Um, that would have been the first time in your career a manager had even left, because you had Fergie, then you had Keegan, yeah. and then after that it became a theme. But at the time, did the dressing room just lose its... Was that the demise of Newcastle nearly, in, in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really hard to take, because... I didn't see it coming at all. I remember coming into the training ground and somebody just saying that the manager had resigned and completely shocked by it all. Uh, 
you know, but the the thing about it is football moves on, and you know we get Kenny Daglish in, and you know Kenny was fantastic. I had a great relationship with him, and just unfortunately, it did, it didn't work out for him. And he brought you know, in Rush, he brought in Barnes, Pierce. It's the type of thing you do if you're playing football manager. It's yeah. good on paper, but it yes. doesn't like you wouldn't have brought in those boys then. No, I think I think I mean his problem as well. You know, you're coming in and trying to replace Kevin Keegan, who's an absolute god on Tyneside. You know, it's it's like. Obviously, when Alex Ferguson left, coming in and trying to replace Alex Ferguson, yeah, you know it is so so difficult. Um, and you know it was it was difficult for Kenny. Just things didn't work out. You know, we in in, in saying that, you know, when he did take over in in the January, um, we managed to secure second place in the in the Premiership, and we we qualified then through a playoff into the Champions League. So he took us into the Champions and League. And he was in charge that night where you famously beat Barcelona. You got yeah. to assist yourself a spray got the hat trick. Yes, you know, I mean I think Newcastle's finest ever debate. Yes, I th- I think when, when, when people look back and they, they remember that sort of Barcelona game, they, they probably think a lot of people probably think, Oh, Kenny Dug- or Kevin Keegan was the manager because of the style of football yeah. that we played that night and you know, it was uh, it was an incredible <coughs> night to be to be a part of. Um, you know, certainly the, the the best ninety minutes that I've ever played. And you know, looking back, it's fantastic for me because I think if you're going to pick your your best ever game, you know, you're going to pick one of these European giants to have it against. Yeah. And, and for me, Luis Figo that, was Rivaldo playing. Yeah, Rivaldo, yeah, like Luis crazy Figo and playing at Saint James' Park. Yeah, ridiculous. But this is kind of the same around the time where when you're in twenty two, twenty three. And the media know how to pick their targets. There started to be a bit of a tab boy persona. You developed as a bit of a bad boy. Hmm. The gambling, the brawling, whatever the, the shagging. The night you beat United 5-0, the season after you lost the league to them, United went on to ultimately win the league again. But there was a, a night of redemption on Tyneside. 5-0 against Fergie's United. Doesn't doesn't happen. <laughs> um, happening as Chelsea once, the City 6-1. It's rare. People will always remember it. And that night's when it all seemed to kind of started, where the media had a little turn on you when you were in the club in Newcastle and the kind of notorious football hooligan takes an issue with you in the club. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, I think he just obviously had too much to drink and it was somebody that I knew from uh, from being around the town and, and spoke to him loads of times. But, you know, he uh, I never played in the 5-0 game. I was on the bench that, that day, but... Uh, he just took it upon himself to to remark that I didn't want to play for the club anymore. I wanted to be back at Man United. You know <laughs> where he got this from. You know, obviously, it was drink talking and, and were you linked kind of with moves back to United? No, you were no. playing so well at the time. No, 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 not no. at all, not at all. It, you know, it's it was just really. A, so he tells you you don't want to be here. Yeah, it was just a stupid remark, and you think you know, just beat Man United five 0 You know, he should be on top of the world. Yeah, you know, and not trying to pick a fight with one of the players. Yeah. Um, you know, so my girlfriend at the time uh, pulled my hand to walk away and he swung at me and I swung back and hit him and, you know, he got thrown out and he's running at the, the, the bouncers outside to try and get back in and, you know, it was a difficult situation for me. Um, you know, I was sort of just protecting myself but obviously it made the newspapers and that and, um, you know, I had to explain myself to, to Kevin Keegan as regards it um, and, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't an easy situation at the time. It was tough to shake that as well, wasn't it? It kind of stayed with you around the town. It it it, it did then. Um, you know, once you're involved in something, you know, mud does stick. Um, yeah. You know, and did you uh, kind of feel like that was you'd, you'd reached in terms of if you look at it from the outside now, having having retired, that was the when it started to just go downhill at Newcastle in terms of I'm, I'm slowly leaving this club. Yeah, I mean, when I look back on that, 
that particular, uh, you know, time. Um, you know, for me, you know, the guy throwing a punch at me, you know, if if he hits me and, and I don't hit him back, it's still going to be the same sort of exactly, story. Yeah. You know, that I'm involved in a brawl. Yeah. But it's a brawl that was, was none of my making. And I yeah. felt a lot of times with stuff, you know, I never ever went looking for trouble. Yeah, uh, even afterwards, though, that set the tone because there was like four or five stories about you involved in brawls in your career. You'd the one on the plane with Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, there was the one with the the coach. Uh, was a Blackburn. Blackburn, and then of course, what oh, was the sure. one in the one in Dublin? So yes. you're, you're you're in you're on a trip to Dublin with Newcastle. Yeah, we're on a trip. Um, it's sort of March time. We weren't we weren't playing to the following weekend, the sixth round of the FA Cup, and. You know, uh, just a wee get together where we go away and you know have a few few days. Um, so we travelled to Dublin. Kenny Douglas is a manager, but never travelled with us. And Terry McDermott was looking after us, so we were travelling early in the morning. And you know, we we knew we were going straight out in Dublin as soon as we we got there. So we had a few drinks and then into um, Cafe on Seine and, mm, and on Dublin. Dawson Street. Yeah. yeah, and Dawson Street. So we went in there and. You know, as you know, it's a big, long, narrow bar. Yeah. We were sat away down the very back, and we knew we just all we, we we had the, the the best team spirit. You know, at Newcastle, it, yeah. was, it was you know we 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 would very much socialise a lot together, even in Newcastle. Uh, so we're all sitting at the back. We're playing these sort of drinking games, which we used to do a lot. And if you lost, you had to take a drink, and everyone's you know slowly getting a bit more pissed. And um, so it, there's there's some cutlery on a table, and it was you know. F- why the cutlery was there, I'm not. I'm not even sure. But I, I knocked it off the table. You know, ac- purely accidental. Yeah. Uh, there was wasn't like I just sort of, uh, you know, done it on purpose. And the girl came over, was picking it up, which was fine. Um, and Alan Shearer sort of pointed at me, he was sitting opposite, and says, "You should be picking that up." And I just looked back at him and went outside now. <laughs> and um, I didn't. I didn't really think that he would take me up in the offer, but he he did, and he stood up and. I stood up then as well and started walking and I'm in front of him walking to the front door and I'm thinking, I have no chance here. You know, he's a big lad, Alan. And uh, we got the we got the front door and I, I remember thinking the only way I've, at least I've got to get one dig in here. So I turned and swung at him. Um, he swung at me and hit me in the side of the head and I fell and hit a plant pot. My head hit a plant pot and that was me unconscious. So there's blood everywhere. Um from some of the players rushed out. Rob Lee was was the captain. He thought the best thing to do was get Alan Shearer away from the situation because we knew then he was England skipper at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we knew then that there'd be police there and potentially reporters and what have you. So they got him away and uh, and Steve Howie he came to uh, he he came out as well. So Rob Lee told him to you know look after me, see me back in the hotel. So he travelled with me in the in the. Um, in the ambulance to, to the hospital and I spent the night in hospital just because you know it was a head injury yeah. um, came back to the, the hotel the following day and the first f- knock on the door and it was Alan Shearer and Rob Lee and they came in and, and, and we laughed about it Yeah, and it, it was just like a, a you know a drunken boys will be boys type yeah. of thing and there was never any, any problem with myself or Alan after that you know and uh, you know it, every time I see him now we you know, it's always mentioned. We have a laugh about it. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe people thought there, w- there was some sort of. But it's still the kind of story that it wouldn't have been happening under the Ferguson regime. No, definitely not. And there's the gambling. But in terms of women, like Ferguson always had the thing. It wouldn't stand up now. It was probably overly conservative and traditional. But to marry early. Do you. you you've talked about temptations and how, like, it's very easy to talk about. Um, 
kind of being unfaithful from the cheap seats and you're sitting there you're talking into a microphone and you're two stone overweight and have curly hair it's very easy <laughs> to talk to Keith Gillespie about being unfaithful because apparently when you're in Newcastle especially in the 90s this is in the pre-internet Instagram days every woman wanted to be famous off being with a footballer do you also think there's an element of footballers being given so much so young and just feeling entitled to kind of do whatever they want whenever they want to do it yeah I, I, I can understand what you're saying um you know, some footballers, you know, it does go to their head and, and they do think they're untouchable. Do you think it went to your head? No, not at all. I, I definitely don't because I'm still, I was still the same down-to-earth person and I've always been that way and that's... Do you think you're easily led? Oh, without a doubt. Certainly when I was younger, without a doubt. Um, you know, that's, I think that's just the immaturity of it being, you know, part of that sort of Newcastle side you know, I was the youngest sort of yeah. player in that side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so you've got all these sort of internationals and, you know, you are sort of easy, e easily led. So, know, yeah, there know. was no real malice to it. You were just kind of a young kid getting himself in scenarios of being put into a situation that nowadays in 2019 he'd have an agent and a team behind him. Because you were, your name in 1995, like, bigger than Jesse Lingard's now, man. Yeah. No, I'm being serious, <laughs> no, though. If you look at it on paper, you'd done more in the game. Do you know what I mean? 20, 21, you're coming second in the league twice. You're involved in a proper team with proper players starting week in, week out under Keegan and Ferguson. You've played under both, but you had no guidance. No. So that's the reason you ended up in a in a house where you didn't even know she had a boyfriend and you, you wake up and your picture's on the wall of the bunk beds in the room next door. When her boyfriend comes in, you're pretending to lie in one of her kids' beds. You end up getting a brawl, going down the stairs, and the kids are there looking at you. Yeah, I think in terms of that brawl, you know, I probably brought that one on myself. Yeah. But as as I say, I didn't know when I was going back to the house that there was a partner. Um, obviously the the girl wasn't wasn't mentioning that to me, and all of a sudden he turns up at the door. Um, you know, so that was one of the scenarios which I wouldn't want to be in again. Yeah. Um, but you know, twenty, twenty two, twenty three years of age at the time, and you know you find yourselves in these situations because, as you say. You know, playing for Newcastle, um, you know, being out, you you are treated like gods, you know. Yeah. You know, you can see the way the Geordie the Geordie people are with with their football team, you know, you're idolised wherever you go, and that was that was the good side of it for me in terms of the women. How did you have nobody looking after your financial affairs? How were you allowed just take thousands out and put them on horses at ten to one? Yeah, it's just the way it was. Eh? I mean, you, I was sort of very carefree. Um, you know, you always thought. Well, were you offered agents? Were you offered financial advisors? Well, you know, I, I I had an agent then. I did have an agent, but it wasn't an agent, you know, who's, you know, sorting out financial affairs. You know, that was something that came a bit later. And I did have sort of an agent who who looked after, who had a guy who looked after my financial affairs yeah. as well. And you know, I I did have sort of various parts to that where um, I had another friend who. Who got me involved in property and, and sort of ran off with sort of half a million quid. Which happened to a lot of nineties footballers. Exactly, because we're we're very trusting. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and as a footballer everything's done for you. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to think about an awful lot and you're very uh you know, I was very, you know, trustworthy. You know, I trusted probably the wrong people and that's just again more naivety in, in on, on my part. It's kinda of safe to say that the temptations 
hadn't only kind of got the better off you off the pitch, but in terms of the key Gillespie, the raw winging talent, by the time you went to Brian Kidd's Blackburn and left Rue Gullet, who, as you say yourself, just was a case of a great player, poor manager, mm-hmm. and his career has proved that. I'm pretty sure he was at LA Galaxy. By the time you were 24, 25, you had probably reached... You still went on to be a top Northern Ireland player, starting a League Cup final for Keith Gillespie standards. You openly weren't as kind of performing at the levels of the gigs as on the Beckhams now, even though you'd always been on a par with them up until twenty four. Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, I think I think being at Newcastle, certainly under Kevin Keegan, when you're given that that role as if just go and attack, I was given that role by Kevin Keegan, where you know you didn't have to do that defensive side of things. Um, you know, you go to Blackburn and and being a right winger, then you you end up sort of at times doing more defensive work than you do attacking work. Yeah, you know, and as I say, under Kevin Keegan, I didn't have that. You know, but was so your head? Were you as motivated to be a top player then? Oh, I, I, I still was, and you know, I had four and a half years at Blackburn, and and, and you didn't want to let Kid down either because you I, had so much experience I, with I him I in didn't, the past. And, and you know, I obviously knew him from from Man United and. You know, it was his first sign at Blackburn. Unfortunately, you know, we ended up getting relegated that season, uh, which was was really disappointing. That was the first disappointment in terms of the relegation side of things. Um, but yeah, you know, I felt as if at times that I was doing more defensive work, whereas my strength was was further up the pitch, where you know you're running at fullbacks and getting crosses in. Um, so I think my game suffered in terms of that because, as I say, under Kevin Keegan. Um, that entertainer side, um, you know, I felt sorry for our defence at times at Newcastle, yeah, um, because we were so strong going forward, and it was a case of you know, you score three, we'll score four at times, yeah, and that's why we did get labelled, you know, with that nickname, the entertainers. And then of course Sunes came in, um, he tries to rekindle the York and Cole partnership at Blackburn, but apparently relations with York and Cole and Sunes were. Is it true that he went in two footed on one of them training? Yeah, he went in. He went in two footed on on Dwight York one time and left a big gash down his leg. Yeah, as the um, manager, as the manager, yeah. Um, and he he went in late on Andy Cole as well. I remember Andy Cole just walking off the training pitch. Five minutes later, you seen his car driving out, <laughs> of, the, uh, out of the the training ground. You know, and this is crazy. The fact that your two main strikers, you've got your manager trying to two foot them. Yeah, you know, which is a strange. Yeah, one. that's beyond belief. And then, of course. Again, it's even if you there was temptations off the pitch and and you'd been gambling and you'd had a kind of unstable romantic life, you were still getting Premier League contract after Premier League contract, and you got to Leicester, and a period in your career which is dominated by an incident in La Manga in which yourself, Paul Dickoff, and Frank Sinclair were of course cleared of allegations from three random German women of of rape. Mm-hmm. How shocking was that entire experience, and did it kind of make you become reclusive in fame? Was that the one that broke the camel's back? You know, even even looking back on it now, you know, it it, it still amazes me that we we spent as much time as we did in in prison. Um, yeah, six nights, man. That's a yeah. big deal. Yeah, we well, we spent two nights before in police cells, and then they came. That was the Wednesday and the Thursday night. Then the Friday, um. We realised because there was eight of us originally, um, five of five got out, and then three myself, Paul Dickoff, Frank Sinclair, because it was a weekend. We ended up going to uh, to prison, 
Carter Hayne in prison. So what happens? Mickey Adams, Newcastle, or sorry, Leicester are struggling, but there's a good chance of survival. There's a talented squad of players who were there, guys with a lot of experience like yourself. Um, and Frankie Slayer, top player, Paul Dickoff, what, what, what a centre forward. And you go to La Manga on a February trip, you're having a bit of fun, a few guys are doing a bit of gambling, a few guys are drinking. And as what happens with footballers is there's a few hangers on girls whose kind of money's mysterious. How, do you, how are you even affording the accommodation to be here? Like debatable prostitution. And you get dragged into the scenario in which they're just in your room, they won't get out, you just ask them to leave, and next thing you know they're claiming, with the next room of Swedish couple saying that nothing like that happened, they heard the whole thing, and they're accusing you guys of forcing them into, into sex. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about it was, it, um, the, the casino, which was next door to the hotel, that's we were all in there, and I was sat at the, the blackjack table all night with, um, with Ian Walker, mm. and the rest of the boys were down the back, you know, I had my back to them all the time, and wasn't even aware that they were down talking to any women um you know but there's these three uh girls uh they lived in germany but they were from malawi okay uh but finished at three o'clock the, the casino headed next door to back to the um back to the hotel and i went straight up to the room there was a bit of noise you know we're a bit noisy coming yeah. back and i went straight up to the room and my, my key card wouldn't work so i came back down and the guy from reception took me back up yeah. and opened the door so I was actually on the phone for a good hour then because uh, the Blackburn boys were up in Marbella at the time and I was speaking to, to Craig Short. Okay, so you were going to meet them debatably? No, I, I, I was just because I knew they were out and I was yeah. speaking to them. Okay. And, uh, my door was still open um, and Ian Walker and, and um, Matt Elliott were in the room opposite. I was sharing a room with Frank Sinclair. So the room was open. They came back. It was, I heard a bit of commotion in the, uh, in the corridor. And one of the girls had gone for Paul Dickoff and and grabbed him and she'd ripped his, his necklace, which was a gift from his wife or mm-hmm. something. So all of a sudden, there was one of them had come into the room and she just sat in the bed. And I was like asking her to get out. She wouldn't get out. Um, she did in the end. Um, and to me, that was the end of it. You just maybe pulled her arm and go, here, get out. She was sat in one of the bed and I pulled her arm and then she like went a bit hysteric. And then she she left. Yeah. Um. So that was that was pretty much the end of it. That ha- that was the Sunday night. On the Monday we trained as normal. On the Tuesday trained as normal. Um. Myself and Ian Walker were were getting ready to go into the casino again on the Tuesday night. Some of the boys had gone out for a Chinese, and and we've got a, Mickey Adams coming towards us, and he's got a face like thunder, and he he looks at us and uh, he goes, uh, "What do you know about rape?" And we're sort of just looking at each other, going. Well, something happened last night because you know w- with these girls yeah. on the Sunday nights you know although nothing happened you know we didn't think any more of it we, we didn't know what had happened mm-hmm. on the Monday night so we knew nothing about it so Mickey Adams rang uh, Muzzy is it you know who was out with one of the players yeah. with the rest of the players and, and arranged for them to come straight back to the hotel we had a, a meeting in a conference room and all of a sudden uh, Stefan Freund one of the German players had, had stood up and said yes, he had he had sex with one of these girls, so we thought right, that's that's what it's all about. So we all had to hand our passports in, and and the next day, um, uh, eight of us had to go. Eight of us plus um, Stephen Freund had to go down to police the police station to give statements. So Stephen Freund was the first one in and gave a statement. That's him free. All of a sudden, Paul Dickoff goes in. Next minute, he's walking past me handcuffed, and I'm thinking, what's happening here? I'm next in, 
same thing, handcuffed. Before we know it, there's eight of us sitting in police cells. Fuck. And we're like all looking at each other, just absolutely bewildered about what has just happened. Um, we later found out that on the Monday morning, these girls had uh, were staying in the same hotel. Had asked the hotel could they check back in again, um, and the hotel refused them. So these girls, you know, if you've been raped on a Sunday night, why would you be trying to check back into the hotel on the Monday morning? Uh, we also found out that uh, they got a taxi. They were getting a taxi to the airport on a Tuesday, the Tuesday night. Um, the, the taxi driver was able to say that they stopped off and, and, and had food and all, a pizza, while he waited in the car. Was there ever a moment of fear, though, even though you knew the whole time that you hadn't done anything? Did you think, why are we being yeah, you know, imprisoned there was, there was, here? There was that fear in terms of your, your hands are in a... You know, and the spot. tabloids, for at least five years, as long as it's written, and they might have to pay damages, but they still make profit off what they sold. So although you might have got financial justice... Your name was tarnished. Exactly, exactly, and tarnished again. You know, that's me saying about in time in terms of off the field stuff. That is, you can still find the articles. Th th yeah, exactly. But Do you that, know what I mean? That yeah. that is something which is totally out of my hands. You know, me being associated with that. You yeah, know, absolutely nothing went on. And did but, you struggle to cope with that level of injustice of of being even like because. Again, 80% of the world are just reading Kika Gillespie Rape. They're not reading the ins and outs, and they don't care if you are innocent. Exactly. So for the rest of your career, I presume there's people in crowds going, you raping bastard. Oh, exactly. I had that um, at away grounds um, you know, for years afterwards, even though that it came out that I was, I was obviously innocent. But, you know, again, mud sticks. Um, and it's, it's a scenario I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through. But... In terms of being in, in jail for six days, um, you know, it was a case of, you know, remaining strong and, and, and trying to have faith in the Spanish judicial system, you know, because this is, I think if this happened in England, you know, we, we wouldn't have spent a day in prison. There's not a chance of that whatsoever. Um, you know, so that was that was difficult. But the, the six days that we spent in there was about remaining strong and, you know, we're innocent. We've done nothing. Let's just put our faith in 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 the, in the judge here that, that that they'll see that and and thankfully they did in the end. But you know, for us to spend six nights in some in a in a Spanish jail for something that you didn't do, you know, even now looking back is very hard to take. Crazy. So after that, obviously, Mickey Adams Leicester side get relegated from the Premier League, and from then on, with your reputation in tatters out of your hands. It kind of seems over. It's hard to get a club. You go for a trial at Leeds. You're just you're kind of getting a general coldness from the footballing world towards you. Yeah, um, you know the season after we got relegated at um, Leicester, um, I still had another year in my contract, and Mickey Adams left after a couple of months. Craig Levine came in, and I had a sort of new lease of life under him, um, and I ended up getting Supporters Player of the Year. Uh, but at the end of the season. You know, Leicester were struggling a little bit financially, um, and they couldn't really offer me a, con a decent contract. So I ended up leaving the club, and then it was really difficult to find a club because, you know, you're tarred with so many of these sort of issues. Um, and club clubs always think there's no smoke without fire. Um, in terms of obviously the 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 rape allegations, you know, that was just as I say something which 
you know, was out of my hands. But and clubs agent. do go off tabloids because when you left Newcastle and Freddie Fletcher sold a story to the newspaper overrating an injury of yours so Middlesbrough wouldn't commit to signing under Brian Robson with a big contract but also could justify them having got rid of the competition via the tabloid story they leaked could only offer you a one year deal yeah that was that was when I was at Newcastle the, when um, I was in the last year of my contract they were messing me about a bit with the new contract and I thought it, you know, I was looking for better terms uh, Middlesbrough came in um, three and a half million fee was agreed and I went and spoke to Brian Robson which would have been a dream for you yeah play exactly because he was, he was my hero growing yeah. up um, you know so everyone was agreed to go to Middlesbrough and then uh, I failed a medical um, I'd missed the cup final the previous the end of the season uh, the previous season and I didn't realise that I broke, had a broken bone in my foot so when I came back to, to Newcastle they'd offered me a new four year contract but you know obviously with failing the medical um, I came in and uh, Kenny Douglas had, had known nothing about me going to Middlesbrough. You know that's how much of a shambles it was. They were trying to sort of sell me behind his back. So I rang Kenny Douglas and said, "Look, bad news. I failed the medical." And he says, "It's not bad news for me. You're still in my plans," which which was great to hear. But then Freddie Fletcher sells a story to the newspaper that my career could be in doubt. Um, so then they and this guy's the the head of the club more he's or less. A, he's the chief executive. Um, you know so. That's not what you need to hear, um, you know, because people read that and think, well, there must be some truth in it. Uh, I've spoke to the, you know, surgeons, the physios, everything, and saying, look, it'll heal. There's, yeah. there's no problem whatsoever, you know. So it was a bit, it was a bit naughty of of Freddie Fletcher doing that. But it does show you that clubs do respond to tabloid allegations. So it kind of explains that after the the Leicester incident, how difficult it must have been. But Warnock was willing to take. A risk on you? Yeah, I was very friendly with Craig Short, who had signed for Sheffield United, and and Craig Short says to to Neil Warnock, "Look, you need to take him on here." Um, and is he as mad as they say, Neil Warnock? Is he? Uh, he's 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 a great character. I uh, had so much time for him. Um, you know, I was living up in the northeast when I was travelling to Sheffield. Yeah, you know, he was great for a senior player in terms of, you know, I train on a Monday sometimes, and he would say to me, "Look." We'd always have Wednesdays off. He said, "Look, have Tuesday off, and I'll see you Thursday." You know, you know, he really knew how to look after the senior players. Um, you know, he was he was mad as well. And he got he did a great job in getting you guys promoted. He did, and it was it was great. You know, I went into I went into to Sheffield United, and you know, absolutely loved it. And as you say, we got we got promoted, and you know, the good thing about it was we got promoted at the expense of Leeds. Um, yeah. and Leeds was the club that had gone to with a hope of getting a contract and, and Kevin Blackwell yeah. was the manager and never spoke to me. Yeah. Know, so that was sort of bittersweet. And then your Premier League year though with Sheffield United was kind of dominated by a feud with the, your agent on the club about a contract and stuff like that and Warnock even you got the quickest Premier League record ever still stands the elbow on Stephen Hunt when he came off the bench. He even accused you of doing that deliberately for your agent. You ultimately went down at the end of the season with the West Ham controversy and Carlos Tevez. Mm-hmm. What was it like after that for Warnock, did he lose interest in Sheffield United and kind of got a taste of the Premier League and wanted to stay there? No, I mean, there was talk earlier in the season that he might be going to Portsmouth and, you know, I would have sort of been disappointed if that had happened. Um, you know, I, I, I played the majority of the season um, for, for Sheffield United. Um, I, I became a regular, um, you know, which was 
which I wasn't when we got promoted. Um, you know, he, he he trusted me in terms of being a senior player. You know, keeping the ball, making the, the right decisions, and, and you know, keeping the ball, you know, at the right yeah. times. And um, but uh, as I said, I became a regular in in the in the season where we get got relegated, and it was it was so disappointed in terms of the you know how we went down with the whole West Ham you know saga. Um, you know, and how didn't they get to do the points for that though? Well, it's crazy. You know, it's they didn't own the players. Exactly, it's 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 totally crazy looking back on it, and you know the club suffered, and you know it's taken them. That was two thousand six. It's taken them sort of thirteen years uh. to get back into the Premiership. You know, and sometimes as a, as a club, like Billy Sharp was still there. Yes, he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes as as a club going up to the Premiership, that first year is the most important year because if you can consolidate, then then you can kick on the second year, and that's what we could have done. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was disappointing. Um, With all the experiences, a different style of football you've had in terms of title races, Champions League, relegation battles, promotions. Do you not think that gave you such a rounded education as a football mind that going into management, especially with the reputation you had as a player, would have been a natural process? Or did things like kind of gambling and personal life not even give you the opportunity to pursue that? Do you think you need the solid base? to go after a managerial life because it takes up as much time as a playing life yeah I think and saying that you know there's there's plenty of sort of people that have become managers who I've played with and you know it's not something I would have seen them doing yeah you know making that move into that and you know management for me was something that I never I never thought about I didn't want to do that I, I don't think I'm ruthless enough I think you got to be very ruthless as a manager um you know, so that the contracts selection, contract selection. You know, and you know, even even little things like you know, new contracts for young young people. You know, having to tell letting them, them down and shit. Enough. And yeah. I just don't think I I have that streak in me where I can be that ruthless. So it was something that you know I didn't sort of think that I would I would want to do. Um, yeah. And you know, now I find myself involved in the agency side of things, looking after players. Um, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough business, but tough in what way? Because I think there's two. You know, ninety nine percent of agents they just want money. They view them as yeah, a product. Yes, for for me they do, and you know, your most important thing is looking after the player. And I I I understand that because I was a player. Looking after them financially or in terms of their career? In terms of their career, you know, giving them the right the right advice. You know, there'll be agents who'll you know. Tell a tell a player, look, you need to get out of this club, you know, and for probably just for for the financial gain that the that the agent will get. Yeah. Um. Whereas you've got to think of the player first and foremost, and that's what that's what I like to do because I know that I've been in the situation and I've had an agent when I when I moved to Blackburn who tried to rip me off. Um. You know, when 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 I made that move, um, he got paid a hundred grand by by Blackburn. But didn't tell me and tried to hit me for a bill for seventy five grand separately, agent separately. fee and then his fee yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was the reason I got rid of him and I got an agent then who was absolutely incredible the rest of my career, who put me first. Um, you know, a lot of these. Do you think agents are good for the game? Well, I think ever I think players do need agents, but what what do we get agents fees though? Yeah, some of them are extraordinary. Um, if you're the what's like a Mino Rayola, people like that. Yeah, it's, it's they're just you know mind-boggling the fees that are paid to them. Um, it's absolutely crazy. Um, but as I say, I, I think in terms of me being an ex-player, 
um, and knowing knowing dressing rooms. A lot of these agents, you know, have never kicked a ball in their life. Yeah. Um, they don't understand dressing rooms, the dynamics of dressing rooms. Um, they are in it for a quick buck. There's no doubt about that. Does everyone know what each other's making in a football dressing room? I think you've you have a fair idea because you are all doing the same. Generally, you don't discuss that in a bank or in a no. firm because yeah. it's all about hierarchy. Yeah, you We're all doing you, the same job. Yeah, you don't know exactly, but I'm, I'm sure you have a fair idea. He's on such and such a week. He's on that. He'll be on more. You know, that's just the way things is. You know, nobody's going to be on the same at every football club. But um, yeah, it's 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 important for me that you that players do have the right people looking after them and people who who want. To look after them first, and you and your did you 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 co-founded agency with a with a partner? Did you? Yes, we're we're, we're a part of an agent, we're Brian Adair uh, from from over here in Northern Ireland, um, and you know it 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 is a tough business, you know, because there is a lot of skullduggery yeah. <laughs> that goes on. And are you just looking after that? young Northern Irish talent, or are you looking over? No, we 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 like to sort of try and broker deals as well and work with clubs. We've got some young talent. Uh, you know, and it's important the younger talent, you know, get the right advice. Um, you know, and it, it's, I think it's, it's a positive in that I've been there, and I, I, I know, mm. you know, what it's like coming through as a young player, and young players that that we, we represent or like to rep would like to represent, have got that option of of speaking to me on a one to one basis, rather than just rocking up when his contract and a new contract needs to be signed. Um, you know, like to get over to games to watch watch players and stuff. Um, you know, and I think it's very important with with agents and players to to build up a personal relationship and become friends with them rather than just ringing them once every four months, yeah. seeing how things are going. You know, it's important I think to be a bit more hands on than that. And how did it, based off the career you had, the heights you've reached, how did you end up? Playing in front of five hundred people for Longford Town in twenty thirteen. <laughs> well, my uh, my agent at the t- at the time who looked after me from sort of nineteen ninety nine was um, was one of the main sponsors at Longford Town. Um, so was it nearly a favour? Yeah. Well, the the the, the stadium Flanker Park became known as City Calling Stadium, which was my agent's company. Okay. Um, and he was uh, he was a big sponsor of the club, so he said to me, you know. Did a fancy come and play for a year, and I I jumped at it then, and and I ended up staying nearly three years. I thought I'd be playing for a year there, but uh, enjoyed it that much and stayed for three years, and then just had a little bit of problem with my knee towards the end, and and sort of had to call it a day. Otherwise, I'd have played a lot longer. And would the kind of bankruptcy have been a reason why you were willing to take contracts at places like Glentoran and Longford? Yeah, but you know the bankruptcy, you know, was was unfortunate. Um, was that due to? Was that due to gambling, more or less? No, well, a lot of it as well. Um, got involved in a in a film scheme, which a lot of players got involved in, and and where you kind of commit to loans and stuff like that. Yeah, and you and you know you got you got money back at a stage, but then from year there's a fifteen year period from year five to year fifteen, you paid the money back to the inland revenue. Um, and looking back on it, it's a totally crazy scheme because from year five to fifteen. A lot of that time, you're going to be towards the end of your career. Yeah, uh, where you're earning your wages are, are going to be as high. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of players got involved in that. A lot of players have have 
have also had to, to declare bankruptcy. Um, you know, so it was a weight off my shoulders at the time. But I always knew I wanted to play for as long as I could. You know, because once you retire from football, you know you can't get that back. Yeah, you know, I was always told play for as long as you could, and and I certainly did that. And in terms of when it was all said and done, and if you could take back any of it or regret any of it, would it be losing money on horses? Yeah, of course, that's a big regret. Um, Because you get a lot of people to say, I don't have any regrets, or I wouldn't have arrived at the yeah. place. Like, obviously, of course, you've been very open about your mental health issues, something that's only coming into football now. Yes. It's kind of been a macho world for so long, and then we've had the shock and death to people like Gary Speed, who you knew personally, and you, yeah. you said that absolutely shocked you, and you never yeah. saw things like that. But it's kind of becoming a theme now that you can talk about your mental health issues in football. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's more apparent in the football world and just everyday world now do you, you think know? that the problems you had were kind of always there and you masked them with things like gambling and it was an actual genetic chemical imbalance or do you think that the situation of being addicted to gambling and the variety of other things that occurred triggered it yeah i i think a mixture of everything um you know as a young sort of 19 year old you're not sort of all of a sudden you're a million pound footballer you know i've just been sold and this your your life changes overnight. Um, all of a sudden, you have more and more money. As you say, more money than most people my age. And with having this sort of gambling addiction, um, have you got have you got treatment for gambling addiction? No, I never did, and I just sort do you of still punt the odd time. I I do you know on a Saturday I have the odd you know ten twenty pound accumulator. But, but you'd never get to a stage it's, it's, again. You don't. No, think. gosh, no. It's more even if you had it though. If you had no, it, definitely not. Definitely not. It's 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 for me. It's more more of an interest on a Saturday. You know, you'd be maybe in the pub or something with the boys, and you yeah. have a wee football bet on, and you're watching the scores come in. Just a little bit of interest for me. Um, but no, I never ever um seeked advice. You know, it was something which I'm quite proud of. you know sorted out myself. Um, yeah. You know, that's very Irish thing though as well, isn't it? Like, well, you know yeah, what I mean? that's a, a very male sort of thing as yeah. well, where we like to sort our own problems out. And it must be weird for footballers because it is probably the only job in the world, and obviously women play football. But in terms of your everyday work environment, there's only men there. You might have the odd physio or masseuse, but you only work with men. It's the only profession in the world where you, even the army. Yeah. don't work with men only. So that doesn't only lead to the male pride being preserved, but also the kind of attitude towards one night stands and female interaction they don't like footballers don't only get the opportunity to grow with the other gender they only kind of view them as as objects in a way yeah pro probably so and you know when you're in and around a dressing room and it's sort of all male banter you know you you, you do see things in a, in a different way you, d you obviously don't have that you only really really have that interaction when you're on a night out with with yeah and, and at that sex. stage you're you're drinking like exactly exactly so yeah were drugs ever part of the scene in the 90s football no never you know i've never i've never been near a drug in my whole life really in terms yeah. of even you know like a spliff or whatever yeah. because you, know? <laughs> you just get tested yeah exactly exactly and i've been tested loads of times you know and you know for for me you know people need drugs and you know and it's it's a sad addiction but for me being on a night out you know drinks enough for me i don't need to yeah to be in another world sort of with drinks and i've sort of had enough sort of issues with and, and just before we wrap up because we've obviously talked about all the varieties ups and downs of your career but obviously at the end of the day we can't change the fact that you were um the great footballer kiki lesby so 
I just wanted to know if you could pick one of the three following nights that meant the most to you. And it would be the League Cup final, where you started and won your only major trophy of your career. Northern Ireland beating England in Windsor Park. Or the 3-2 against Barcelona for Newcastle. If you could rank them. Rank them? Um, Surely beating England. Yeah, you know. With Rooney and Beckham and the boys yeah, playing. Yeah, you know, I, I think in, in terms of the Newcastle-Barcelona game, you know, that was unexpected. But I think... The gulf between Newcastle and Barcelona was not the same as the gulf between Northern Ireland and, and England. England. You know, and that and that night, you know, you know, Gerrard's playing, uh, Lampard's yeah, playing, great. Ashley playing, Cole playing, Owen's playing. It's fucking great. Ashley how did that Cole. even happen? Though? Exactly. You know, and, and how did David Healy get a hat trick against Spain? Yeah, no, that was uh, again. That Javi was, was playing. Yeah, that was. An, you know, you got Javi and David Villa and. You know, Iniesta and Torres and, you know, Fuck absolutely inc- incredible. So that's side. number one. That's the best moment of your career. Yeah, w- without a shadow of a doubt, you know. And then the Geordies beating Barca. Yes. Um, and did Widgeon, the League Cup, even though you hadn't won a major trophy, you're still only the League Cup in your eyes? Yeah, you know, it, it, for for me, that was more of a toss of a coin. You know, we felt as if we could go out and win that. You know, Northern Ireland v England, you know, I think a 1-0 defeat or a 2-0 defeat would have felt like a victory for us because yeah. we'd lost the previous game against them 4-0. Yeah. Um, and you look at the, the the side that they had, um, you know, and we restricted them most of the night. And I remember actually the morning of the, of the, the game, we, we had a training session and uh, John Motson was at the training session and I was talking to him and he was pointing at one of our players asking who it was. He didn't <laughs> know who it was. <laughs> You know, and that wouldn't happen with England. Yeah, I mean, obviously you know, not, man. Um, you know, everybody's sort of recognisable, but he didn't know some of our players. Um, you know, so for us to go out then and, and, and beat England was, you know, just an incredible night. And who's the who's the greatest footballer? It's obviously, it's a question that you get asked a lot, but overall, cause you played with so many and they all offer different things, play different positions. But like, who's the greatest footballer you've ever played with? Yeah, it's, it's a good one, you know, because... You know the list of skulls. You know Skullsy, and I, I sort of take Skullsy more for for granted because you, you know, grew up with him. I grew up with him. So you're thinking more kind of Peter Beardsley kind of thing. Well, Beardsley was amazing. You know, for for me, just for his sort of sheer arrogance, the way he went about the game, the uh, king was was Eric Cantona. Um, Better than Shearer. <laughs> I mean, Shearer was was fantastic, but just Eric's whole persona, and that you know he walked in the dressing room, and you could just he just had that the exuberance, um, you know, and what a player he was, um, you know. Com- completely. Was it very obvious because people say the missing piece of the jigsaw, you exactly. know, was it very obvious? Came second year before when he slipped in. Did you kind of know even from the background not playing? This is it. This is the year. Well, when he when he came in, you know, we didn't know too much about him. We'd seen obviously at Leeds, but we didn't realize that he was going to be what he actually was. Um, you know, and he was just an absolute genius at times. Um, very hard working and training. Always, always staying behind after training to f- to practice finishing and and what have you. And just, you know, an absolute joy to play alongside. How did you and Roy Keane get on? Absolutely brilliant. I I'd never had a problem with him the whole time. I enjoyed his company. You know, very funny guy. Um, you know, and 
one of the best players that the, the Premiership's seen in terms of the Without role, question, the role yeah. that he played. And yeah. underrated technically because of his leadership. Exactly. Like, great pass for the ball. Scored he, goals in his peak. Exactly. And I remember when he first came to the club, you know, the engine that they had box to box was, was incredible. He even able to play right back at times for... For Man United, uh, but just a just a proper leader on the pitch. Um, I never know. had a problem with you being from Northern Ireland and stuff like that. Oh no, never at all, never at all. You know, I, as I say, I got on great with. Because are you more Rangers than you are Celtic? Yeah, uh, yeah, it would be. You know, it's yeah. just it's just what you're brought up with. Uh, but you know, I think he's I think he's a great pundit because I love listening to him because he says it as it is, um, and that's what that's what people want to hear. But um, as I say, no, he was absolutely fantastic with me. Um, you know, a few years older than me, but got on great with him. Tune or are you red? Who do you support? <laughs> I am Man United because I was brought up Man United. So every weekend still, you're rooting for the Reds? Yeah. You know, Reds play Newcastle, you're up for the Reds. Yeah. You know, it, Newcastle is my second team because I've, I've I've got so much, you know, great memories there. I'm actually off to... to to St James's Park tomorrow to okay, watch, yeah. watch them against Watford. Uh, is that for? No, I love I love going over to Newcastle. Um, it's a fantastic city. I had four amazing years there, and you know you can't sort of sort of switch that off. You know, in terms of the the whole city just gets to you. You know, it gets in, mm. inside you, and you know it's a it's a very special place to, to go and, and, and watch football. Honor to talk to you, sir. Thank you, Thank you. It's been how many years, my boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me see the light. What about those tears? Tears believe my eyes. How's it make a feel? Makes me feel alright.